And, uh, you know, I expect God can do anything He wants. And part of the service could be one way and part of the service another way. Uh, praise God. But I kind of expect this session, as it was last week, to be a teaching session. Uh, amen. And, uh, you know, Jesus had a, had a three-part ministry. If you read Matthew chapter 9, He went around the cities and villages teaching, preaching, and healing the sick. Praise God. And so those were the things that he really centered up on. Notice the first thing, the priority was teaching. You know, uh, my people perish, God said, because they lack knowledge. They lack knowledge, the right knowledge. We don't want to be people that perish because we lack knowledge. Amen. Now, part of my message today is going to be uh, me talking and part of it is going to be video illustration. Because I thought about just doing all the talking and trying to highlight these points and illustrate them best I can. But I came across a very wonderful video with graphics and everything that I just think is going to get my point across better than I could if I was just talking. And so we'll get to that in a few minutes. Amen. Father, we just come before you today. We're so grateful. God, you're the teacher, the rabbi, the master. We are the apprentice, the student, the disciple. Jesus said, if we hold fast to his word, that we will be his disciples indeed. And so, Father, we're come to this, we've come to this point in the service to learn. God, none of us thinking that we know it all already. Father, we just so thank you that your Holy Spirit is active and involved. First of all, giving me utterance and helping me to articulate pro- properly, Father, what you're wanting to get out, what you want the people to know. But God, we also thank you the Holy Spirit is actively and equally at work in the lives of those who are sitting and watching and listening, causing them to know, to be enlightened, to hear, to comprehend, to understand what they are hearing. God, we determine today to be doers. Praise God to be changed, to never be the same after this teaching. And we thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Now these services are going to build one upon the other and I don't have time, uh, praise God, to go back and rehearse everything that we previously taught you. And you would have done well to have gone back and if you weren't here to go back and we encourage you to do that and get that message. It's on the podcast. It's on the website. You could get a CD of it. But here's our golden text for this series. 2 Timothy chapter 3 verse 16 and 17 says, All Scripture. Amen is given by inspiration of God and is profitable. Most of the translations I've read say it is useful. Useful for what? Well, for teaching, doctrine, right? Take the Word of God and teach people how to have great marriage. You take the Word of God and teach parents how to raise godly children. Amen. You take the Word of God and teach you how to be healthy and how to live disease-free, pain-free. Glory to God. Every arena of life that matters to you, that touches your life, amen, yes, and even your eternity, God has already spoken about. Amen. Amen. We have a written record of it, and thank God that we can be taught. Glory to God. And that's a big part of why God has instituted the local church. Praise God. It is also profitable or useful for reproof, amen, for correction. You know, if you're right with God, you love being, you love being corrected. You don't mind being corrected. Amen? Because as we've said many times, it is not what you're doing right that's holding you back or hindering your life from moving forward. It's what you don't know. It's what you're doing wrong. It's what you're thinking wrong. Amen? Talking wrong, believing wrong. 
And you come to church to hear that, to be confronted with that, not to be beat up, but so that you can change it. Right? I mean, any safe or any good padlock that has a combination on it, you got to get, you know, if it's got a six-digit code on the safe, five numbers isn't going to get the door open. Right? You know, I go to my gym locker, I got a three-digit code, and it takes all three. Bump, bump, bump. And I could go, well, I'm doing good, lock. I'm doing good. I got two out of the three. Come on. It's not going to open. It's not going to open. Right? And there are going to be, right, uh, for us to receive healing in our bodies, we've got to get all the, we've got to get the tumblers right. Right. Amen. Amen. And, and so we come to church to learn these things. At least I did. I do. Amen. Praise God. And uh, praise God. And then it says instruction in righteousness. How it, the Word of God is there to instruct us in how to live a life that is going to be pleasing unto God. A righteous life, a holy life. Praise the Lord. The end result is verse 17, that the man of God, that's, that's lady too, right? May be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. Hallelujah. And so we gave you some Bible basics last week. We talked about the Bible's origin in history. Amen. Gave you a lot of facts about the Bible. Now, one of the things I didn't tell you, but obviously many of you know it, is that, of course, the, uh, the Bible is infallible. That means it's without flaw in its original form, in the original form that God gave it. God didn't, you know, Moses didn't speak a word of English that I know about. Right? Right? He spoke an Egyptian dialect and he spoke Hebrew. The scriptures are given in Hebrew in the Old Testament and some Aramaic in there. And then the New Testament was primarily written in Greek because that was the dominant language of the peoples of the earth in that day. So you understand that we have a translation in English. And it's highly accurate, but there are some alarming mistranslations, uh, things that cloud the issue, and that's why you have to study so if something appears to look like a contradiction, it's really not. It's only a contradiction in your mind. You just don't know something. You haven't studied it. Right. Like I've been confronted by atheists before in witnessing to them. They said, oh, the Bible's full of contradictions. The Bible says thou shalt not kill. And then God went out and ordered people to kill whole villages, whole nations, wipe out the men, the women, the animals, the boys, and the girls. Now, is that true? Well, it is true. God ordered, you know, the Amalekites to be wiped off the planet. Not a lady, not an infant, not a child, not a cat, not a dog among them is to be left alive at God's order. And yet one of the Ten Commandments is thou shalt not kill. Well, actually, no, that's not right. The Bible says that thou shalt not commit murder. Thou shalt not shed innocent blood. A soldier who goes out and kills an enemy, has not committed, they have not violated the thou shalt not kill commandment. Oh, I know the King Jimmy says kill. It doesn't say murder. I know it does, sweetie. But it wasn't originally written in English. It was originally written in Hebrew. If you look up the Hebrew word, it'll say murder, not kill. Right? If you're a veteran and you went and you did things on behalf of this nation, you're free as a bird. And I have an ounce of guilt about it. You just did what you had to do. Right? There's the death capital punishment is a biblical thing. That's where we got it as an idea. Oh God, the Lord Jesus Christ would never sanction 
a death penalty. Oh, yeah, he did. It was his idea. Absolutely. And it's not killing, right? No. It's, not, it's, it's killing, but it's not committing murder. Right. So you, have to, you just have to understand these things, right? right? Okay. Praise God. Today, uh, we're just going to get right into it because time just gets by me. Amen. Uh, we want to talk about more about divine inspiration. Notice here in our golden text, as we did mention last week, that it says all Scripture is given by the inspiration of God. So we want to talk some more about what that means. And again, my, my initial goal, and we're going to go a lot of places in this series, so I hope you keep coming, is I want to just continue, if need be, I want to give you a lot of ammo and, and a lot of confidence in why you can trust the words in the book on your lap. I mean, with your life. Amen. With your eternal soul, Amen. with your health, with your marriage, with your finances, right? The Bible claims divine inspiration. Now that's either right or it's wrong. That's either truth or a lie. And throughout the scriptures, it lay claims to be the very word of God. Well, that it, by it being there in the text... It is inviting scrutiny. And if the Word of God can't uh, uphold under intense scrutiny, then it's not the Word of God. We ought to shut this place down. I ought to give you a refund on your money. And we ought to all go drink beer together. Now, don't get offended by that comment. It's just a point I make. Right? Arlene says, I don't like beer. How do you know you don't like it? <laughs> Mom, I apologize. Because I know you're a holy woman and I don't want to create any sort of false thing out there. Praise the Lord. <laughs> the way I have always thought, I'm just a simple person. I'm an Okie from Muskogee. I'm a straight shooter. This is either truth or it's false. It's either the biggest hoax and a lie and con or God really wrote it. God really wrote it. Paul makes his statement in Galatians. He said, The gospel that I teach and I preach, I did not get from man. Neither did I learn it. But it came by revelation of God, of Jesus Christ. In other words, he's claiming that Jesus Christ post-resurrection appeared to him in some form. Gave revelation to him in some form. In another place in Corinthians, he actually says that he was caught up to heaven and heard words that he was not permitted to repeat. But that the gospel that he writes, Ephesians, Colossians, Philippians, Thessalonians, his epistles, he's saying, this truth I got, I didn't get from Peter. I didn't get it from the church council in Jerusalem under James' teaching. I got it directly. From Jesus Christ. Amen. Now, the term revelation. What does revelation mean? Revelation means that God, of His own will and volition, chooses to unveil or reveal or uncover truths that man could not know otherwise. That's revelation. Amen. Inspiration, this word inspiration, literally means God breathed. 
Or in the Greek, if you look up the definition of God breathed, it, well, let me quote this. Remember what Peter said? He said, the Scriptures came as holy men were moved upon by the Spirit of God, by the Holy Ghost. So the Holy Ghost moved upon the writers and they wrote what the Holy Ghost moved upon them to write. Now, I like the definition, the Greek definition of that word moved upon is uh, the word born along. They were born along. They were motivated along as they wrote. Right? And so, yes, of course, human beings, fallible, imperfect, sin-filled human beings were used to pen much of the Scriptures. Not all. Right? Now, man wrote all of it down. But God, remember how I told you how God took His finger and etched those Ten Commandments on tablets of stone? Right. So that, that portion of the Word of God came right from God. Right. Amen. And of course, scribes have copied it over the years. Hallelujah. But this word inspiration means God breathed these Scriptures. Hallelujah. So I want to spend the remainder of this. I'm not trying to do everything in this teaching. But I just want to spend the remainder of our time giving you proofs of divine inspiration. Again, can you scrutinize the Bible? Test it. You should and you can. And many have. And we're going to share with you some of the fruits of their investigation. Amen. So I don't know how many. We're going to give you several and their subpoints, and we're going to go fast. Are you ready? And again, I'll make these notes available so you don't have to you know, try to scribble everything down. Hallelujah. The first and one of the most important um, evidences or proofs of divine inspiration we did cover last week, and that is the unity of the Scriptures. You remember we talked to you, it took 1,800 years of human history to get the full canon of Scripture that you have in your Bible there. That's a big, vast period of time. Different cultures, people wrote on different continents, right? Very few of them knew each other. Now, Peter knew James and, and Paul had met Peter and so forth. Right? But Moses didn't meet, you know, Peter. They were separated by millennia in time. God used uh, different men, 40 different men to write the scriptures from lawyers, priests, scribes, tax collectors, fishermen, farmers, doctors. Luke was a doctor. Paul was a tent maker. Moses was a sheep herder and a stutterer and an unlearned man. And God used him to write much of the Old Testament. The first five books of your Bible, the Torah, the law, right? Praise God, he, he penned that. Up on a mountain without food or water, you know, for 40 days and nights. And God gave him all that. Amen. So the Bible claims. Praise the Lord. Okay. So you remember, you get 40 different people from all these different cultures... And they all teach the same thing. They all have the same spirit. They all have the same voice. There's not, no contradiction. There's no mistakes. That's, in, that's impossible. It's just absolutely impossible for that to come about. We gave you the illustration. If you had 40 people, even in the same room, and they all wrote independently on the same subject, think about how disagreement and contradiction that there's going to be in trying to make all that harmonize. 40 people, and you separate them from hundreds of years, almost 2,000 years, it's just impossible. So one of the first proofs is uh, divine uh, unity of the Scripture. And we talked more in detail about that. So we're going to advance it. Praise the Lord. <clears throat> the next one is one of my favorites. 
And it is proof from prophecy. Proof from prophecy. Uh, praise God. According to Finest Dake, one of the most profoundly uh, anointed uh, commentators of the scriptures that I have ever come across, his name's Finest Dake, F I N I S Dake, D A K E. He says there are 3,268 scriptures in your Bible that contain prophecies with thousands of very specific details that history records have already been fulfilled. Now, for example, just in the Old Testament, the prophecies about a... Go way back there before Nazareth, before Jesus ever showed up on the scene. You know, the carpenter's son. Before that ever happened, the Old Testament... uh, contained 333 prophecies about who the Jewish Messiah would be. What they would call Him, His manner of death, not only that He would die, but His bones won't be broken, that He would be bruised and beaten even before Roman stripes were ever, right? Things like, the Bible prophesies that He would be born of a virgin. Now that's a whopper. Born of a virgin. Uh, prophesied that he would be... Just get the geographic prophecies about Jesus. He would be called a Nazarene, but he would be born in Bethlehem, and they, I would call my son out of Egypt. You think about prophesying that, about a human being, before it came to pass. You've got to be born in Bethlehem, but you've got to be known as a Nazarene, but I'm going to call you out of Egypt. That's like saying you're going to be born in Tulsa, you're going to be called a Paducan, but I'm going to call you out of India. And, you know, here, get that right. Just three little prophecies. Try to get that right. It's just impossible. How he would come in to Jerusalem on his final day, riding on a donkey that no one ever rode on. I mean, the year is prophesied. What year he would come into Jerusalem and be cut off? 333 of these. All fulfilled in the life of one man named Jesus. Now, to the atheist, to the agnostic, to the unfaithful Christian, (laughs) you could doubt that kind of thing if you want to. But, you know, oh, how do you know Jesus is the Son of God? Well, it's not even going to be possible for me to accurately give you much of a description about the astronomical statistical odds of all of those prophecies being fulfilled randomly in the life of one man. But I'll try. I'll try. Did you know for eight of these prophecies, how many of them are? 333. Eight of them. Take eight of them. Take the hardest eight. Right? The odds of eight random Old Testament prophecies being fulfilled randomly in the life of one guy out there on the planet, somewhere in time, is one to the 17th power. You've got to put 17 zeros on it. Now, to give you a visual illustration of how astronomically high that number is, one in 17, that only eight of these prophecies could be fulfilled in Jesus randomly. Cover the state of Texas two feet deep in quarters. Texas is a pretty big place. This is what the statisticians say as an illustration. Cover the state of Texas two feet deep in U.S. quarters. And Susan, I have randomly painted one of those red. 
I'm going to blindfold you and send you out into the state of Texas. I'm going to give you one chance to pick the painted quarter. That is the statistical odds of eight of these prophecies coming to pass randomly in the life of one human being on planet earth. The actual number, if you want the odds for all 333 coming to pass, is 1 to the 97th power. You'd have to put 97. I don't even know that that number has a name. Is Jesus the Messiah? Is He the Son of God? Should you put your faith in Him? Should you listen to what He said? You do what you want to about that. But this little center college boy way back there investigated this kind of stuff and go, okay, Jesus is legit. Right? And where are all these prophecies? Who could have written that? Again, these prophecies are spread out throughout different writers, different times, different cultures. How? How? And I mean, the marvelous, the, it is so, I, I just, Father, help me, what could I do? It is, the Word of God is like a, an onion that never ends. You keep peeling at the depths of it, you will never get to the end of the wonder only God could have written the Bible. Yeah. We were just reading one little devotional from a Jewish scholar. And he was talking about the Old Testament Levitical instruction that once a year on Yom Kippur, the, the holiest day in for a Jew, that's the, the Day of Atonement is what we call it. That on that day, the high priest would come out and he had to have two identical looking goats. Two identical looking goats, right? And then he would have a, a jar or a basket or a bowl and he had two rocks in there. And on one rock, one rock's like heads or tails. One of those goats is going to pull that rock and he's going to place it on the head of one of the goat. He's going to take the other rock and place it on the head of the other goat. One means you're going to die, you're the sacrifice. The other means you're, you're guilty, but you get to be let go. And so, okay, let's say it's this one. The rock says you're the sacrifice. The other one says this, you're going to be let go. And they did this every year as a symbol. They cut that guilty one, the, the sacrifice goat's throat, it died. And then they, they let the other one go free. The other goat, you're free, you're, you're free to go. It's all in the Word of God. Jesus shows up and it's crucifixion day. On the day of atonement, on past, you know, on this day. And he shows up, and you remember Pilate steps out. Pilate steps out with two rocks. Two men. The identical. They have to be identical. Right? They're two human beings. Jesus is a human being. Well, Pilate steps out and says, I'm presenting two men. Y'all pick. One's going to die. One's going to get let go. And they cry out. Who do you, he says, who do you want to let go? Barabbas, Barabbas, Barabbas. A guilty murderer. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Let him go, let him go, let him go. So the rock of sacrifice falls on Jesus. Yeah. And the rock of let go falls on Barabbas. But these have to be identical. Do you know, I, I was reading this book and it says Barabbas. The name Barabbas comes from two Hebrew words. The first one means son of and the next word means of God. Barabbas' name in Hebrew means son of God. Who could put this in the... You could put it in the Scripture, but how do you fulfill it? How do you fulfill it? Like I mentioned earlier, 
500 years before Jesus comes into Jerusalem on the donkey, Daniel says, in this year, the Messiah will show up in Jerusalem and be cut off and killed and crucified. And do you know that secular history traces the date? And it, uh, Jesus rides in on the day. All those Jews should have been there in Jerusalem waiting because they knew that scripture. But they weren't. But the Bible got it right. Now, how would you like to predict a very uh, specific event, how it would happen in a city far away, and it happened in that year? We'll give you the year. Don't even give us the date. The year, 500 years from now. You want to try that, Carla? Kara? I said Carla. Kara? You want to try that? Anita, you want to try that? We can't predict the weather. With all of our technology, satellites, radars, airplanes. And yet man wrote the Bible. I don't think so. I don't think so. I could go on and on with that. Another proof is proof from fruit. The Bible is God's word. It's evident. It's proof. Part of the proof that the Bible is God's Word is you look at the proof in the lives of those who follow it. I am living proof that that's God's Word. Because the life I'm living today, Paul, is not. (laughs) But as I have stood on it, read it, practiced it, believed it, I've become the healed, I've become the blessed, I've become the righteous, I have become... (laughs) Right? Come on. Many of you, your lives. People can call you a liar if they want. But the fruit of the Bible is evident in our life. What other book has impacted your life like that? Again, any one of these I could preach sermon series on, but I'm just giving you a highlight. Now, get ready to uh, post this video. Uh, This is one of the most amazing, startling, and you'll never get to the end of this one either. But another proof that the Bible's divinely inspired is proof from science. Now, depending on where you come from, your experience, you might um, have heard uh, and believe that science and the Bible are in opposition. They just don't agree. You have to either be a person of science or you have to be a person of faith. You cannot be both. That's a lie. And in every single statement that could be touched in the Bible on the subject of science has been proved out to miraculous degree. Amen? And so we're going to turn the lights down. This is several minutes long, okay? Um, And this is primarily the the end of my teaching. We'll get up and I'll say something after, but kind of give you a little bit of an idea. All right? Praise God. Let's watch this video. I hope you enjoy it. The video goes on if you're interested. It's called the 10 most, uh, uh, what is that, Melissa? We could get you the name and we could post a link. Let's post a link on our website for those. And he goes and he goes out and talks to people. Let's turn to one final passage as we close this morning in Hebrews chapter 4. Did you like that? Praise God. I hope you did. You know, if someone were to ask me, you know, in closing... Chris, does it ever occur to you, do you ever have to deal with the thought that everything that you believe might be wrong, might not be true? And my honest answer would be, not at all. 
Because the more I study and the more I read and the more I discover, God continues to wipe out every reason or excuse for doubt or disobedience. Amen. Let's read this one verse as we close this morning. In Hebrews 4 verse 12, the scripture says, For the word of God is quick. That word quick in King James means alive. For the word of God is alive and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder. That word divide asunder in the Greek means to draw a line of distinction between soul and spirit of the joints and the marrow and is a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the motivations of the heart. My closing thought to you today is that uh, for some, I suppose, their lack of faith and allegiance and obedience to the Bible is one of information. They don't know that they can and should trust what is written. But for the vast majority of us in this room, it's not that, is it? One of the things this verse says, not only is that the Word of God is alive, but that like a scalpel, it highlights the thoughts and the motivations of the heart. For most Americans and Christians I know and meet, their trust or lack thereof, their faith or lack thereof, their obedience to or lack thereof in the Bible is not due to a lack of confidence that it's divinely inspired. It's a moral one. It's a heart issue. And that's one of the things why people might not read their Bible. is because it shines the light on their own sinfulness and on their own need for God in their life. And I just want to encourage you, I'm doing everything I know to do, to gain your allegiance in these last days to your Bible. Amen? Again, you should read it every day. You should feed on it like food. You should carry it and use it like a flashlight to light your way and to light your path. Jesus said in John 17, 17 about His Word that my Word, that the Word of God is truth. There is truth out there if you're interested in it. Amen? And uh, praise God, I just uh, hope and pray and believe that the Holy Spirit is bit by bit, line on line, precept by precept, increasing your faith in the Scriptures and the God who wrote them. Amen? Bow your heads with me. Father, we come today and we're just thankful for teaching. We're thankful for divine knowledge. We're thankful for a place where we could come and just have it called to mind, for many a, a reminder for some, they never knew. They never had, they never knew those scriptures were in there. <laughs> and that medical science is still trying to catch up with God. Science, astronomy, they're still out there trying to catch up with God. Geologists, historians, archaeologists, they're all out there and they're still trying to catch up with God. Father, in the name of Jesus, you created every person sitting here today. You made them. They are gloriously, fearfully, and wondrous, wonderfully made, your, your Scripture says. And as the Creator, You own us. And we are accountable to You. And You love us so very much. Father, with head bowed and eyed closed, I would just give everyone here that, an opportunity to 
acknowledge the God of the Bible. The Bible says that Jesus came as God's Son. That He lived a sinless life. He was born of a virgin to escape the curse of Adam's sin flowing through His veins. That He was the sinless Son of God and that He died. He took our place in sin. And that three days later, because He was innocent, God raised Him from the dead. The Bible boldly declares that he who has the Son has life. But he who has not the Son does not have life and never will. So if you're here today, or you're watching me by live stream, you're listening to this podcast, and you do not have the Son, you need to know with all confidence the Word of God clearly states you do not have life. But if you'll take the Son for yourself, if you'll believe upon Him, commit your life to Him, that you will receive forgiveness for your sin, redemption for your past, you'll become a brand new creature in Christ and alive unto God spiritually, and that you'll be His very own son or daughter. So what about it, friend? Is there anyone here today you want to raise your hand and say, Pastor, where I'm sitting, I'd like to pray the prayer of salvation. I want to give my life to Jesus. Anybody in here like that? I want to give you an opportunity to do that. <clears throat> Glory to God. Yeah, I see your hand. Thank you. You could put it down. Praise God. If you're out there, you're listening. This message goes lots, lots of places. Praise God. Then you can. You can. You can uh, join us in praying this prayer in just a moment. How about, how about you as a believer? Are you an unfaithful Christian? But you said, you know what? This is just too serious. <laughs> I've not been paying attention to my Bible the way I need to. I've got away from God and I want to get back to God. I want to live for God. I want to rededicate my life to Him. If that's you and you say, Pastor Chris, pray for me for that. Pray with me. Lead me in a prayer for that. Just raise your hand up and we gladly will. Yeah, I see your hand, dear one. Praise God. You can put it down. Glory to God. Glory to God. Glory to God. Doesn't matter, matter to me one bit if it's one person. All of heaven, the Bible says, breaks out in rejoicing over one sinner that repents. Glory to God. More so than, than heaven is excited about the one that stays faithful. Glory to God. Glory to God. Glory to God. Well, church, as we know, we're going to pray. And if you raise your hand for salvation or rededication... I just need you to utter words out of your own mouth loud enough that your own ears can hear them and let your heart agree and God will meet you where you are. We're going to join you, right congregation? So say this, say, Father, I give my life to you and afresh and anew or for the very first time I take Jesus, the Jesus that the Bible talks about, God's Son, I take Him to be my Lord and my Savior. I renounce Satan and all sin, and I repent, and I'm sorry for the things I've done wrong. I thank You for the blood that was shed, that it washes me, it cleanses me, causes me to be a brand new person. Alive in the Spirit. A child of God. So I'm saved now. I'm right with God now. And I pledge my, uh, I pledge my allegiance to the Bible and its words. Holy Spirit, help me from this day forward to live my life 
in a way that pleases God and to fulfill His will. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Glory to God. Glory to God. Well, I want to invite all of you to stand up on your feet. And I want to remind the whole church, but especially those of you that you've recently been born again, rededicated your life to God. First Sunday in February, we're going to have a class for new believers, a foundations class. Paul's going to teach it. It's going to be a great time. Nine o'clock on Sunday mornings. We want you to come. Praise God. You could go on the other side of this wall right over here and sign your name down.